Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you tips for real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience so that you and I can get to success a lot faster. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because we are all busy. With that, in the last episode, we learned what is due diligence and what are some items that you would have to cover during the due diligence process. And today we are reviewing how do you prepare for a possible recession with your investments and how do you underwrite deals with that in mind. We are interviewing Hunter Thompson. He is the founder and managing principal of ASIM Capital. ASIM Capital is a private equity firm based in Los Angeles, California, which helps accredited investors passively invest in recession-resistant real estate. They have purchased more than $75 million of commercial real estate with the help of more than 300 investors of theirs. Here we go. Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today. I am personally very excited about this topic. And as I was browsing through your website, I saw that the tagline there says, achieve asymmetric returns through recession-resistant real estate, which is perfect. For this podcast. Yeah, exactly. And from my observation living in Silicon Valley, I think that the signs are everywhere that something is about to pop. One example is a company that I used to work for is currently losing $130 million per year, and they're valued at almost $10 billion in the stock market. I also dabbed into angel investing, and I see so much money being thrown at startups that don't even have any customers. And I see a lot of money being thrown in real estate. Cap rates are very, very low. Interest rates are at an all-time low. And the government is not raising rates for some strange reason. As these signs all happened right before 2000 and right before 2008, I think it's a great opportunity for us to jump into why we should be looking at recession-proof properties and how you underwrite these deals with that in mind. If you don't mind just giving a brief intro about what you have been going through and how you got into real estate and we can jump into the, the recession-proof properties, that would be super helpful. Yeah, sure. So really my strategies, my entire investment thesis is really born out of the most significant downturn in recent history, you know, with the Great Recession. I'm just the type of person that was very inclined to go left when everyone was looking right. So when 2008 happened, I was very drawn to financial markets. So the first thing that I started looking at was stocks and bonds just because that's what I was most interested in. That's what was, I guess, to be honest, it's the marketing, right? There's so much overwhelming marketing to help people focus on stocks that you can't help be interested in it. So when 2008 happened, I jumped all in to financial assets, started studying the stock market, really focused on value-based investing, similar to a Warren Buffett style of investing. And for a lot of people, 2008 was their last straw moment. 2008 for me was a green light. I didn't really realize the challenges with the stock market until about two years later. And this is something that I talk about a lot, but 
almost no one else talks about is a huge lost straw moment for me, which was the European debt crisis. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is that I had spent so much time studying the stock market, reading charts, understanding how to do technical analysis and just a variety of other metrics. And then something happened with Greece and many European countries where there was basically a complete lack of liquidity in the market very similar to what happened in the US in 2008, but it was with markets that I had absolutely no insight into. I could never have predicted that the Greece bond yields would be one of the most important predictors of my entire portfolio. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was what everyone was talking about on CNBC out of nowhere, as if this was reasonable. When I started to understand that no matter how much research I did, no matter how much of a market advantage I thought I had, or even how large my team was, the stock market is so correlated and interwoven with each other that I can't mitigate the risks that are taking place all over the world in the global capital markets. And so I started to look for investment vehicles that were well positioned to the downside, but even more importantly, the problems that could potentially come up were mitigatable. And that quickly led me to real estate. And then quickly, because of that experience with 2008 and 2010, built an investment thesis entirely around recession-resistant real estate, which we can talk about. That's why I was so interested in the topic. As a small company or a small family office originally, I felt completely powerless. I felt like I had zero market advantage. But with real estate, a small team can have a tremendous market advantage even over some major players in the space. The thing at the time was they were saying the Greece bond yields, if they went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if they stayed below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I remember waking up every day in market timing, just looking at this and finally realizing, what am I doing? Waking up at five in the morning, looking at the Greece bond yields all of a sudden, I've got to find something that's actually going to be able to be predictable over the long term. And as any listener of the show knows, real estate is just an incredible wealth for protecting and growing your own net worth. But more than anything, that predictability of outcome is much higher through cash flow. And then when you compound that with the recession resistant component, you're starting to get the best of both worlds. You're getting the leverage, the tax advantage, and also that predictability of outcome through the inverse correlation of the demand and the overall economy. And that's really where our investment strategy has been focused over the last 10 years or so. How do you prepare and how do you underwrite deals with this in mind? Let's look at the big picture, right? Because the big picture thesis, they can be incorrect, but at least you have a thesis and you're heading forward and you're looking for data to align with that thesis or potentially disregard that thesis. So from my perspective, it works something like this. All types of real estate are going to perform when the capital markets are booming and the economy is really heating up. If you can raise rents aggressively, you can fill occupancy, you can complete capital expenditure and expect to be able to raise rents, et cetera, when the economy is booming. But only some types of real estate do well when the economy is contracting. Even if you have a portion of your portfolio that's focused on the types of real estate that do well when the economies are contracting, it really significantly increases the overall risk profile of your portfolio. And I mean, increases the, the favorability of the risk profile. Now for me, a significant portion of our business is focused exclusively on things that cater to, let's say people that are making $35,000 a year, $55,000 a year, somewhere in that range. The mobile home park business, for example, is probably the most clear example of a recession resistant asset because the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. Think about it like this. If everyone that's making $100,000 moves down to making $60,000 and everyone that's making $60,000 moves down to 40 and everyone that's making 40 moves down to 30, there's always demand for that bottom product, even if everyone moves down a rung because it's just a different set of people. 
Now, that doesn't paint the whole picture, which is something we can get into. From a big picture perspective, though, the mobile home park business is very compelling because the demand is stable. A similar case can be made for something like self-storage, where people use the product when they're going through some kind of life change. So let's think about things like downsizing, very common during recessions, people changing jobs, people having to move in order to stay employed. Things like that are all very common during recessions. And also you have people moving home from college unexpectedly, all very common during recessions, but all of them spur demand for the product of self-storage. From a downside protection standpoint, it's very compelling. And then also looking at the historical data, this isn't just something that it sounds reasonable. This is actually very well backed up by historical data, decades of research on the topic. If you just Google recession-resistant self-storage, you'll find an article about as the recessions from 2001 and again in 2008 took place, rents were stabilized, occupancies increased, while the self-storage vehicle was doubling in size. There was 20,000 self-storage facilities in the United States in around 2000. Now there's about 45,000. And while it doubled, occupancy rates remained high and increasing rents were taking place during both recessions. So it's, it's very, very compelling and not just something that makes sense from a big picture. I don't know much about mobile home parks. What I have heard is that a lot of cities are prohibiting them being built, mainly because of tax purposes. They are not getting a lot of tax revenue from mobile home parks. Yes. How do you find these deals? Is that true? Oh yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable actually. So you have this incredible supply demand equilibrium, which is further expanded by government regulation. To your point, one of the reasons is that the tax revenue from mobile home parks is very low compared to let's say an apartment building or a hotel would be kind of the most extreme example. Because of this, it's basically impossible to get the zoning that allows you to create a mobile home park. And each year there's less and less and less mobile home parks, even though there's a tremendous demand for the product. And actually, let me talk about that real quick because that's really important too. There's about 10,000 baby boomers hitting the age of retirement every single day. Many of them are relying on social security as their only source of income. The average social security check is about $1,300 a month. The average two bedroom apartment rents for about $1,300 a month. So you have all this demand and at the same time, a contracting supply. In terms of how to find them though, number one, five years ago when I was talking about this topic, most of the time I'd be talking about it, it would be explaining you know, what a mobile home park was, how it was possible to invest in them. But now it's become somewhat in trend. More and more people are talking about it because of how favorable the cap rates have been over the last years comparably to other cap rates. But the way that you identify them is you look for significant mismanagement, most notably in the sense of overpaying for expenses and undercharging for rents. You can find a mobile home park, let's say it has 100 lots, that's $75 under market rent. That's very significant because that $75 per month times 100 times 12 to make it annual divided by a seven cap or something, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars of value added to the property or millions of dollars of value added by just simply raising rents. Now you have to do so in a way that's conducive to being, let's say, a $25 rental increase, and then six months later, a $25 rental increase, because the tenant base is very sticky, but also they're in a low income situation. So you don't want to have a PR nightmare in your hands by just bumping up rents by hundreds of dollars, but you can do so and bring them up to market rents in a way that's appropriate. And again, producing millions of dollars of value for your investors. Can we go over how do you underwrite deals and you can pick 
maybe self-storage just to change a little bit what do you look for that the property has to have in order for it to be an interesting investment at this point in the economy i'll start by giving you guys a look behind the curtain so to speak with a metric that you almost never hear anyone talk about in the self-storage business in the multifamily business it's very common to refer to the replacement cost and it's very compelling if you can buy a product significantly under replacement cost, because it's like, how is someone going to compete with us if they can build, if they have to build it for more expensive than we can buy it for? You'll almost never hear anyone talk about in the self-storage business. Why? Because they're very inexpensive to build. So what that means is you have to be very cautious about buying in markets that can be oversupplied quickly. So one of the first things we look at is we have the national average of about 7.7 square feet of self-storage per person. If we have a radius of, let's say, five miles, we look at the number of population and look at the number of square footage. And if the ratio is out of whack, either undersupplied or oversupplied, it gives us a good sense of where the supply demand equilibrium is within that radius. Now, again, that doesn't paint the whole picture, but it's definitely something that's compelling. So for example, if there's only four square foot per person in a geographic location in a radius, that means that there could be an increase of three square foot per person before you start to have a challenge with being able to raise rent. So that's one thing. We're looking for mismanagement and the self-storage business because it has a reputation of being a very simplistic business, I think that most people out of the investment community think of self-storage as being, oh, look, you just have a bunch of little boxes and you just rent them out. There's no toilets. There's no trash. Somebody pays you a monthly rent. There is some truth to that, but that's where people that are thinking about it as an investment vehicle, as opposed to a business. We like to partner with operating partners that have hundreds of millions of dollars under management that have systems and processes to truly optimize these facilities. So we'll take a property that is not doing online marketing sales, that's not doing SEO or have relationships with truck rental companies or universities or military bases. They just don't have the branded merchandise and the secret shoppers. They just don't have that infrastructure. To them, it's just an investment. It's a way to store their wealth. And then we implement that strategy. So our goal is to find ways in which we can generate outsized returns without incurring a proportional amount of risk. And from my perspective, the easiest way to do that is to implement management strategies rather than go through things like unit expansion or taking a C-class property, turn it into an A-class property. We do those too, but the asymmetric returns are really generated by those strategy differences. So one that I find most compelling is the truck rentals. So let's say we buy a property that just has zero relationship with the truck rental company. If you're looking at a Excel model, you know, from an underwriting perspective, that one line item is currently $0 a month. So we're buying that property based on in-place income. Then the next day after purchase, we call our contact at U-Haul, get them to park 15 trucks on the facility, and then we rent out those trucks to tenants as they're moving in and out and get a commission for facilitating the transaction. So U-Haul will pay us that. Now we're not buying the trucks. We're not maintaining the trucks. We're just simply marketing those trucks for sale and getting a commission for doing that. I have personally invested in several properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line. Multiply that by 12 divided by, let's say a seven cap to be conservative. You're talking about $600,000 of equity that you're just turning on by implementing that strategy. And I just view that as being very, very favorable. Living in Los Angeles, are you an investor in this beautiful state of California? You know, I love California. And the reason I really like living here, there's a many, but the weather, number one. Number two, there's a lot of money. 
in California, generally speaking. And number three, there's not a lot of cash flow investment. So it creates an interesting opportunity where there's a lot of capital and there isn't a vehicle to facilitate that investment. And so we have a national outlook to be able to allocate capital all over the country uh, through the relationships we have with our operating partners, which are well-positioned. I personally do hard money loans in California to fix and flippers that I have a personal relationship with. That's not something we do through our company. I just something to keep my own personal portfolio invested while we are cycling in and out of these other syndications, but it's a hard business to scale in my opinion. And so we haven't found a vehicle to do that yet. Because we're focused on cash flow, because it does create that predictability of outcome, the cash flow is just much better outside of California. In fact, you know, we have a focus on the Southeast, Texas, I'd say all the way to Florida. And then with the mobile home park business, I really like the Midwest. You can find properties where a mobile home park may rent for $500 a month, where you actually get to own the home if you're a tenant, or a nearby two-bedroom apartment may rent for $1,300 a month. So the question really becomes, do you want to own your home, have your own place, or do you want to rent for more than two times what you'd pay? And so the right tenants are more drawn to that. So I find those geographic locations a little bit more compelling than California for a variety of reasons. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? I'll say this. This is an incredible time to be involved in real estate. The business is being revolutionized as we speak. I mean, this conversation is a great example of that. I spent at least a year going to networking events, talking to mentors before I was able to learn what someone could learn in listening to 10 podcasts of yours right? And I'm sure you probably had a similar experience. It's just, there's so much amazing content available on the internet. However, there's also an incredible opportunity for access to real estate deals. You can simply Google good real estate deals and you'll get access to deals immediately, which again, was not the case when I started in the business. But what's really critical is that people focus on education. Because in my opinion, the education has not caught up yet with the access. And so when you're looking at underwriting and you're looking at deals, the way that things can go wrong is almost exclusively about the loan. And it's almost never talked about. If you think about every real estate deal gone wrong, probably 99% of them, especially those that have to do with loss of principal, it's because of something with the loan happening. The interest rate goes up too quickly. You can't prepare for that. The loan is, comes due too quickly without being able to refinance or add significant value. When you're thinking about structuring your deals for downside protection, consider the loan terms as being as important, if not more important, as the other underwriting standards. And of course, you know, we I may have mentioned it already, but we have a podcast that goes into a significant amount of detail on topics such as underwriting, and we've had some great guests. I think that education is so critical right now, but it's readily available. You just have to go all in. That doesn't mean go all in on a particular investment. That means go all in on education. And so I want to thank you again for having me because I know that's what you're doing and I know that's what your listeners are doing as well. And I appreciate you touching on that very important point about the loans. A lot of people are asking me about financing options. So that's definitely a topic to be explored a little further. That's very, very important, as you mentioned, in preparing for a possible recession. What is the name of your podcast? It's the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. How can our listeners reach out to you? If you're interested in learning more, the Cashflow Connections Podcast is something I'm very, very proud of. That's three words, Cashflow Connections. And then if you're interested in getting an ebook on the self-storage model, or I'll send you a bunch of free stuff just because I have a lot, <laughs> we have created a lot of content over the years. You can shoot me an email at info at asymcapital.com. And the website is asymcapital.com. 
Hunter, thank you so much for sharing this wealth of information with everyone. I greatly appreciate it. And um, it, it's always a pleasure interviewing people that have podcasts because there is no ums and ahs at any <laughs> point in time. <laughs> no, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and I commend you for doing this as well. I know that you're adding a ton of value to your listener base. And I'm looking forward to you know, watching the show grow and then coming on in the future again as well. Absolutely. It will be a pleasure to have you again. Make sure to subscribe to our channel if you are finding this useful. And if you know anyone who would be interested in learning more about commercial real estate investing, make sure to share this podcast with them and I will see you next time.